We've made our way through the book of Ephesians, chapter 4 and 5, and as we've been going through the book of Ephesians, as we've gone through chapters 4 and 5, we've seen Paul establish for us a series of contrasts, haven't we? He's established for us a series of contrasts, and it all really started back in verse 17 of chapter 4, and this is what Paul says there. He says, now this I say, and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk how? You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God. And then if you jump down to verse 22, you would read, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We spoke about over these last few months the method that Paul uses here in teaching in which he points to wrong behaviors as a great example of how we should not behave, and then he contrasts it to good behaviors that he would like to see formed in us. He'd like to see us behaving and trained up to do things that are good. And so he's been saying to us all along, he's been saying, do you see those people over there at the temple of Artemis? Take a look at those people across town. Do you see how they do things? Don't ever do things like that. That's what he's saying. He's teaching us by saying, you see how those people who don't know God behave? Do not behave like that. Those are the things that you used to do when you worshiped at the temple of Artemis. But now that you are worshiping the one true God, now that you are honoring God, now that you know the one true God, you should do this instead. This is the way Paul teaches. We discussed at some length what some of those things were, and I'm sure you'll remember many of those. Recently, we found that you're not to live with a lack of self-control. You remember that? We said you're not supposed to live without self-control as it pertains to sexual matters. But on the other hand, you are to exercise self-control and you are to exercise self-restraint. We found that we're to model the self-sacrificing love of God instead We're not to conduct ourselves as people who live in darkness, who can't find their way around, who live in abject darkness. Rather, we should live as people of light, shouldn't we? Do you remember that? We're not to act like the fool we learned last week, the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Instead, we should act as what? Wise people who know God's will, the Bible says, and who watch closely each step that we take so that we can be sure to capture Kairos. You remember? We can be sure that we capture the right time. We can be sure that we capitalize on the right opportunity, and we're sure to redeem the time whenever it presents itself. Do you remember that from last week? And so today's passage continues that same pattern for us, and it's most interesting But nestled away in Paul's instruction for today is probably one of the most important commands that you are ever going to find in all the pages of Scripture. This is super important. But before we get to that, I want to just share some interesting findings that I came across as I was preparing for our message today. It seems that on June 26th of 2019, so just several weeks ago, there was a criminal complaint obtained by Action 2 News which states that Outagamie County deputies were called to a two-vehicle crash at the intersection of County Road C and County Road E in the Seymour area. During the response, they learned that someone had been ejected from a vehicle, a helicopter had been called to the scene to transfer a six-year-old girl to a hospital, one of the deputies arrived on scene to find Gustavus Dalton holding two girls near the crash. Dalton said that he'd gone through the intersection 
and the rear end of his truck was hit by another vehicle. Dalton said that he found his four-year-old girl lying in a parking lot some distance away. She had been ejected from the vehicle. A second helicopter was called in to transport her to a hospital. An officer who was on the scene at the time attended to the six-year-old girl before she was airlifted, and he said that she was limp and unresponsive, with her eyes open but no pulse, and she was not breathing. According to the complaint, the deputy who spoke with Dalton at the scene said that he appeared to be glassy-eyed, and it was found that Dalton was later determined to have been intoxicated. On May 16th, at SunTrust Bank in Atlanta, Georgia, a fan bolted onto the field in the ninth inning of the Cardinals game. After a short time attempting to elude police and security guards, he was tackled behind home plate and he was arrested. That fan was later determined to have been intoxicated. On July 15th, so just this last week, after having been reported for suspicious behavior at a local bank, a New Jersey woman led police on a high-speed chase. When the woman's vehicle was finally stopped and she was approached by police officers, she resisted arrest, violently fighting with three police officers, even biting one of them on the leg. That police officer was treated and released from the local hospital. The woman was determined to have been, say it with me, intoxicated. We don't need to go on about it, do we? Everybody gets the point, I think. For some reason, the more alcohol a person consumes, the more his judgment and his motor skills are impaired. According to the American Addiction Centers, alcohol decreases the activity of the brain's prefrontal cortex. Easy for me to say. And this is the part of the brain that helps you to think clearly and rationally, and it is involved in your decision-making processes. When you drink alcohol, the alcohol makes it harder for the prefrontal cortex to function as it should, disrupting your decision-making and your rational thought. In this way, alcohol prompts you to act without thinking about your actions and the results of your actions. Last week, as you remember, we studied a passage that defined people who act without thinking about the repercussions of their actions. Don't you remember that? Do you remember what we called those people? We found that the Bible said those people are fools. That's what the Bible teaches. Alcohol reduces the functions of the behavioral inhibitory centers in the brain. Now listen, it also slows down how information is processed in the brain. Several months ago, we noted that for people in their teens and their early to mid-twenties, they already have a brain that has not yet fully developed its sense of inhibition. Listen closely. What that means is that people in that age group of teens to early to mid-twenties who already struggle with their sense of inhibitions, when you add alcohol to the mind that already struggles with that, they become even less inhibited than their limited sense of inhibition already would have been. Does that make sense? It's a lot of inhibitions, isn't it? Think about that. So what that means is that people in that age group who are already prone to doing things without the thought of consequences add alcohol and they give even less thought to the consequences. It interferes with the thinking process. It interferes with the decision-making process. It's harder for you to work out what you are feeling and it makes it less likely that you will be able to really think through the potential consequences of your actions. And so when the effects of alcohol begin to work on brains that are already underdeveloped, it further inhibits the decision-making process. Does it make sense? It sounds about right, doesn't it? People in their teens and early to mid-twenties are particularly 
vulnerable to the effects of alcohol on their brains. Prefrontal cortex part of the brain is also partly responsible, it seems, for your sense of control over your emotions and your sense of control over your behaviors, which means that it impacts your willpower and even your aggressive thoughts and actions. Now listen, it can enhance emotions you already feel and make it harder for you to gauge when enough is enough. You following me? When you drink, you're probably going to be less able to control your emotions. You may speak, you may act without thinking, and situations will get out of hand much faster than they would if you were not drinking. That's why in many instances, the use of alcohol results in abusive language. And it results in behavior which is often accompanied by violence. According to FBI reporting, alcohol is such a key indicator in crime statistics because of that very reason. Due to the impaired ability to control emotions, due to the impaired ability to process information and limit impulsiveness, so fascinating, approximately 40% of all homicides are committed by people who have been under the influence of alcohol. Approximately 60% of all sex crimes are committed by people who are under the influence of alcohol. Approximately 70% of all domestic violence takes place between the hours of 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. by people who are under the influence of alcohol. 70% of all domestic violence. And it was also interesting to me, and maybe you'll find this interesting as well, it was interesting to me to note that approximately 15% of all unplanned pregnancies occurred when people were under the influence of alcohol. People just struggle to control their impulse. They struggle to control their emotion when they're intoxicated. And I think that you've often heard it commonly suggested that alcohol makes people either a lover or a fighter. Have you ever heard that? Are you a lover or a fighter when you've been drinking? See, the problem is that it moves in and it literally takes control of the human brain, influencing the brain to cause you to do things that you would otherwise, under other circumstances, not do. In ancient times, people would consume alcohol in conjunction with the worship of a pagan god. Those worshipers felt that alcohol was able to induce some form of this ecstatic experience which brought them closer to the God that they were trying to worship. They felt that it brought them to a place of higher sensitivity or a place of higher communion with their God. And most often, at those places of worship where alcohol was used heavily, most often worship was accompanied by extreme intoxication And while heavily intoxicated, those worshipers in the ancient day would dance to mood music, which was designed to induce behaviors which caused them to participate in all forms of sexual immorality, which included orgies and even pedophilia. But do you know what Paul says? He draws this contrast deliberately. He draws a contrast purposefully that is very sharp. And he says, do you see those people over there at the temple of Artemis? Do you see the way that they're drinking so much that they're vomiting all over themselves? Do you see the way that they're behaving as they try to worship their God, as they're out of control because of this alcohol? Do you see those people who worship Dionysus? Don't you ever behave like those people? That's what he's saying. And then he says, on the other hand, let's go to verse 15. This is what he says. And don't get drunk with wine like those people do. Don't get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, 
but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so that's our passage for today. And as you look at it, you can see that it's very easily split into two sections. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at one section today, and the next time we get together, we're going to take a look at the second part. But as we've mentioned, drunkenness and the excess of alcohol causes all sorts of problems, doesn't it? Have you ever seen it? You've seen it. You know that it's real. It causes all sorts of problems. And we even, did you know that we see evidence of that in the Bible? Did you know that? If I would take you back to Genesis chapter 9, you would see that godly people, when they become intoxicated, do some really dumb things. In Genesis chapter 9, Noah became so intoxicated that he had obviously passed out in some position that was somehow compromising, and his son came in and took advantage of that and exploited his dad. We don't know to what extent, but he did something very foolish. If I were to take you to Genesis 19, you would find that Lot was led to drunkenness by his own daughters who then took advantage of his inability to exercise judgment and and to properly reason. They plotted together to cause him to commit the vile sexual sin of incest. And because of that, because of some of the pitfalls, I want you to know that there are warnings all through the Bible to avoid drunkenness. The Bible tells us to stay away from that. And so I want to just share with you a couple of short verses that are going to help you see that. Proverbs 4.17 tells us that violence accompanies drunkenness and the drinking of alcohol and drinking of wine. We know that's true, don't we? You show me a bunch of drunks and I'll show you somebody who's about ready to get into a fight. Take a look at Proverbs 20 verse 1. This is what it says. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by them is not wise. How are we to walk? What did we learn last week? We learned that we are to walk as what? Wise and not unwise. Whoever is deceived by these is not wise. Take a look at Isaiah 5.11. Woe to those, this is pronouncing a curse, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. You know what that always makes me think of? Opening day at Miller Park. Have you ever thought about that? I have gone by Miller Park early in the morning and I have found that Cars will begin to line up, believe it or not, as early as 5 o'clock in the morning for opening day. Do you know what they're doing there? They're waiting for the gates to open so that they can get into the parking lot and have the best spots for their tailgating celebration. So while they're sitting at the gate at 5 o'clock in the morning, they're drinking Bloody Marys. They begin to drink early in the morning. They start drinking as early as they can, and they keep drinking as late in the day as they possibly can. And sometimes what happens is they become so intoxicated that by opening pitch, they're too drunk to even make it into the stadium. Did you know that? Proverb 23.20 says, But be not among drunkards or among gluttons, among gluttonous eaters of meat. Look at Isaiah 5.22. Woe, once again a curse, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. Woe to those who are valiant men at mixing strong drink. So what does Paul say about drunkenness in Ephesians 5.18? It's pretty clear. What's he say? He says, don't do it. He says it's debauchery, doesn't he? He says it is debauchery. And I want to introduce you to this word debauchery. This word that's translated debauchery is the word asotia. It's really interesting to me because it's a compound word which comes from the verb sozo, which means to save. Okay, 
So we start with this verb sozo, which means to save. And then Paul takes what he calls the alpha privative and he inserts it in front of that word sozo. And the alpha privative just negates the verb that it's in front of. So it's to mean, it would be like saying unsaved or not saved. You see what I'm saying? So what he says is, it is like saying not saved or unsaved. So his intent is using the word to say that drunkenness, listen, leads to excessive corruption. It leads to excessive degeneracy. It leads to excessive depravity to the point that if you choose to continue to pursue it, your life will be completely and irretrievably ruined. You see it all the time. People who are drunks, who love their drunkenness so much that they have given up everything for them, for it. It costs them everything. Have you ever seen it? There are people who will lose their jobs because of it. People who will give up their families because of it. People who will give up their self-respect because of it. Because they love their drunkenness. So all through the New Testament, drunkenness, as you look, is characterized as the behavior of people who do not know God. It's characterized as the behavior of people who are not saved. It's characterized as the behavior of people who are not wise. So if by this point you have not come to the understanding of what I'm trying to tell you, I'm going to say it very clearly for you. The Bible teaches that believers are never to be drunk, okay? That's clear instruction from the Bible. You are never as a believer to be drunk. So if drunkenness, listen closely now, if drunkenness is characteristic of your life, you are living then as people who do not know God and as people who are not saved. That can only mean one of two things. Paul says that you are not supposed to live as people who do not know God. So if you are doing that as a pattern of life, You need to understand that you are either clearly, deliberately disobedient to the clear instruction of Scripture, or you do not know God. Those are the only two choices. It's one of the two. You're either disobedient or you don't know God at all if you are living a lifestyle of continual drunkenness. And so it's right for us to say, according to 1 Corinthians 13.5, that you need to examine yourselves and you need to determine if you really are in the faith. Are you really in the faith? Listen, friends, do not be deceived. Do not be fooled into thinking that you are safe, spiritually speaking, when you are not. Because people who, do, people who know God do not live like people who do not know God, do they? Isn't that the point of Ephesians? People who know God do not live like those people who do not know God. And it is true that sometimes people who know God make mistakes. I want you to know that. Sometimes people who know God make mistakes. Sometimes they drink alcohol and they lose control and they commit the sin of drunkenness. But listen to me, it is not commonplace. It's not a pattern of life for them. It's not who they are. Believers are never to be drunk. And if you make a pattern of it, you have reason to wonder if you are saved at all or you have reason to wonder if you are, well, you have no reason to wonder. You are disobedient to Scripture. So what does it mean to be drunk from a scriptural standpoint? Isn't this fun? Think about this. In the state of Wisconsin, you're not drunk until you're 0.08. Is that the right number? I think that's, I think that's it, 0.08. And so I think a lot of times what happens is people want to say to themselves, I'm not 0.08, so I'm not drunk, right? I'm not 0.08, I'm fine. But I just want you to know that uh, I'm, I'm not sure that's the best understanding. Because you'll have to remember that at the time Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, I don't think they had an understanding of the blood alcohol content. I don't, I don't think that they knew how to test for that. So I don't think that's what he had in mind. So I think the best way for us to think about it is to say that the believer is at all times to have complete 
command of his mind. He is to have complete command of his faculties. He's to be in control of his mind. He's to have command of his body at all times. So if at any point the believer ever begins to have diminished rational thought, if at any point the believer begins to have diminished decision-making ability, if at any point the believer yields over any level of control of his mind or of his body to the influence of the substance, then I want you to know that he's drunk and he's in sin. The Bible says that as a believer, according to 1 Peter 5, 8, you are to always be what? Sober-minded, which is napho. It's completely in control. That's what NAFO means. You are completely in control. You're not in any way influenced by wine, and you are watchful. That's what he says. So if at any point, any part of your mind is not completely sober, then you are no longer NAFO. And if you are no longer NAFO, you've gone too far and you're in sin. So as I was reading that, as I was thinking about it, I just wondered to myself, so why didn't the Holy Spirit just ever inspire one of the writers to say, you are not to drink wine ever, period. Wouldn't that have been helpful? I mean, if that were the case, we, we could just wrap it up and go grab lunch, right? It's, that's the end of it. You are never to drink wine ever, but he doesn't say that. And as I thought about that and tried to discover why, I made some very d- interesting discoveries. I want to share some of those with you. As you know, grapes and vineyards have been plentiful throughout the land of Israel since the beginning of time. You know that that's true. And so the fruit of the vine was a staple for them. It was something that they always used. And in that climate, without the benefit of refrigeration, do you know what happens to juices after they've been made? They ferment, don't they? And so that's what would happen. The fruit of the vine would begin to ferment, and then pretty soon it was alcoholic. But one thing that was not in abundance, there was not a great abundance of clean water at the time. So think about this. If there was not a lot of clean water... Water primarily came from wells and cisterns, which would become polluted quickly. It wasn't like what we have now here in America. We take for granted that we've got clean water. In fact, you know, if you're not drinking Fiji water or whatever, whatever it is, I mean, that's, that's everywhere. But it wasn't like that for those people. They didn't have Fiji water. And so quite often what they would do is they would, they would take their dirty Fiji water and they would mix it with alcohol or with the wine. And the point was that the wine acted as a purifying agent on the dirty water. You see? And so what they would do is they would mix their wine with their water. And that was the way that wine was most commonly consumed. Now listen, it would be mixed in a ratio of somewhere between three parts water to one part wine, going as far as ten parts water to one part wine or more. Do you understand what's happening here? So the mixture was, there was very low content of wine or alcohol in their water. Many times they would even take the wine and they would boil it into a paste and then they would save it for later. And what they would do then is they would take this paste and they would mix it with their water later or they would even take it and spread it on bread and eat it like a jelly sandwich. And I could go on and on. I could explain some of this to you. And we could, we could talk about all the different words that are used for wine. We could talk about all their different uses, which included everything from just drunken parties to medicinal uses. But I want it to be enough for us right now just to say that at the time and at that particular place in history, it was generally necessary to consume wine because they didn't have much else. There are recorded in Scripture only three people who were Nazarites for life who were never to touch any form of wine ever. Do you know who those were? Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. 
Those are the only three people recorded in Scripture who never touched a drop of wine ever. In fact, Samson, I think, is pretty questionable. He probably did. <laughs> I mean, why else are you going to let that lady cut your hair off and tie you up? And she, there was something else going on there, wasn't there? Yeah. So only three people. But now listen. The point is it was very common for people to drink wine. And most commonly, the wine was diluted with water. So for them, it was necessary. Now, for many years, Christians and scholars, a lot smarter than I am, have debated the issue of Christians and drinking. And the question is, should a Christian drink? So to do that and to discuss that, I think we first need to begin our discussion by saying that a Christian must never be drunk. Right? A Christian, that's, that's the bottom line. That, that's out. A Christian must never be drunk. Under no circumstances is a Christian ever to yield over control of his mind. Under no circumstances is he ever to yield over control of his faculties. Secondly, after we acknowledge that, we must acknowledge that Scripture does not forbid the drinking of wine. We just have to be honest about it. Scripture never does say that you cannot drink wine. In fact, if we're being honest, we must acknowledge that Jesus himself created fine wine from nothing at the wedding in Cana in John chapter 2. He could have made it a lot easier for us and just created a bunch of clean water. He could have made it easy for us and just created iced tea, which I think probably would have been a far better choice. Or he could have, he could have if he wanted to, just create lemonade. But he didn't do that, did he? Jesus created wine. There's no doubt about it. That's what the Bible teaches. It's also worth noting to us that Jesus drank wine and that he shared it with the rest of his disciples at the Passover. So all 12 of them plus Jesus drank wine. We know that that's true. And we must also acknowledge that Paul actually commands Timothy to drink wine. Did you know that? When Timothy was sick, Paul said, get a bottle of wine, or not a bottle, but get some wine for your stomach. (laughs) Have a little bit of wine (laughs) for your stomach, he says. But listen, it has to be noted, we have to acknowledge that in those days, it was necessary for them to drink wine, and that when they did drink wine, it was most often very diluted. Now, let's spring forward to the 21st century, and I want to ask you, is it necessary for us to drink alcohol? We have plenty of Fiji water. Our water is clean here in the United States, isn't it? We have plenty of water. We have more choices of soft drinks than we can begin to shake a stick at. And since that's true, we have to admit that when people drink alcohol today, it's not because they have to, it's because what? Because they want to, right? Can we acknowledge that? It's not because I have to drink it. It's not because I have no choice. It's because I want to drink it. That's the point. So probably what's happening is as believers, they feel that they have some form of liberty. They feel like they have some sort of freedom to drink their wine. So when we drink wine, when we drink alcohol, we feel as believers that we are exercising a liberty or we are exercising a freedom that we have to do it. That's the bottom line. We feel like we're allowed to do that if we want to, and we're going to choose to do that because we have the liberty to do that. Because after all, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking. And they'll often point that out to you. We don't do it because we have to. We do it because we want to. It's a choice. Now, for those of you who were not with us last week, we were in verses 15 through 17. And we found in verse 15, I'm going to put this up there for you, Paul says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So watch carefully how you walk. We decided last week that we should watch very closely where we are putting our foot down. 
We should carefully consider the potential snares and the potential pitfalls of every decision that we make. You see, that's the difference between living as wise and living as unwise, isn't it? Unwise people don't consider the future impact of their current decisions. We already acknowledge that. So as we consider whether or not Christians should drink, we need to consider it as what kind of people? Wise people, right? So what are some of the implications of our choice to exercise the liberty that we may feel that we have to drink? Is it possible that even though we may feel that we have the liberty to do it, that we should not do it anyway? Even though we have the liberty, does that mean we have to do it? Or that we should do it? 1 Corinthians 6.12, Paul addressed something very similar to that. And he said, all things are lawful for me, but not everything is helpful. Not all things are helpful. You see, everything is permissible for me, but some things might tangle me up and cause me to stumble. So you need to ask yourselves as you address the issue, is it in some way helpful for me to drink? Knowing the potential pitfalls of using alcohol injudiciously, is it best to put yourselves into a position where you may fall into those kinds of entanglements? Ask yourselves that. As Christians who are growing in our faith, as Christians who walk in God's will as we are being sanctified, we talked about that last week, don't we want to do our very best to please God and to avoid sin? I believe we do. So if I know that drunkenness is a sin, do I really want to start down the path where I have the potential to develop sin? Is it possible that for me it is like trying to see how close I can get to the fire without actually getting burned? Is that possible? Knowing its potential to be destructive in my life, how far down that path that leads to destruction do I want to go on my own free will? How far down that path do I want to go? How far do I want to walk? In Leviticus 10.9, God was speaking to the priests, and this is what He said to Aaron. Drink no wine nor strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It'll be a statute forever throughout your generation. So, think about this. When the priests were going into the temple to do the service of God, They were not to have their minds clouded. They were not to have their minds diminished by the effects of alcohol. That's why he told them that. If you're going into the service of the Lord, don't you ever drink. That's what God is telling Aaron. He says, if you do, you may just die. (laughs) You may be retired from your job early. And if they did that, there was swift and strong punishment. Now listen, God did not want the minds of people who were speaking and acting on His behalf to have their minds and their understanding diminished, right? We see that. Now listen, in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says that believers are a chosen race. They are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So, Peter is saying all believers are what? Priests. Peter is saying all believers are priests. You are all priests who proclaim His excellencies to the world and you are in His service proclaiming His greatness to the world every time you go into the marketplace. Do you see that? You are God's priest every time you step into the world. So if you are doing the service of God, do you think that it's right for us to have our minds clouded or diminished? I mean, who's going to speak on God's behalf? 
Who's going to speak for God? If your minds as priests are clouded and and diminished, who is going to speak for God? Who is going to speak on His behalf? Does it help your testimony? For people to see you drinking, does that help your testimony? So if it hinders your ability to be a witness for Christ, then don't you think you have to avoid it? Let me share another potential pitfall for you. If you're to exercise your freedom to drink, let's go to 1 Corinthians 8-9. Paul says, be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Listen, I can remember Dad having said, what you do in moderation, your children will do in excess. Did you know that sometimes children follow the example of their parents? Did you know that? Probably not the example you want them to follow as a general rule. But a parent who is very careful and moderate in his drinking, if he does it in view of his child, will likely one day find his child drinking to excess because he does not have the same sense and the same ability to moderate and to respond to his inhibitions as the adult. You may be mature. You may be moderate. You may be strong. But there may be other people who see you drinking who do not have the same level of self-control that you may have, and then they are unable to limit themselves. When they see you exercising your freedom, they may say, well, Scott does it. So certainly it's okay for me to do it. And then because they don't have the ability to exercise moderation, they'll fall into some form of sin of drunkenness. And it was me exercising my freedom that drove them there. Do you see that? Now listen, Jesus offers very stern warnings about that. Did you know that? Jesus says that we are at all costs to avoid causing other people to sin. In fact, He says that if you do, It's going to be so bad for you that it would be a relief for you to hang a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea to drown. We are not to cause other people to sin. And if you're exercising your freedom to drink in front of other people, causes them to exercise a freedom irresponsibly, and it causes them to fall into sin, you're responsible for that. There may be people who struggle with drunkenness. There may be people who have come from a family background of drunkenness who see you exercising your freedom to drink and maybe because of their past if they saw you exercising your freedom they'd be offended and they'd be grieved Paul writes in Romans 14 that even though you may feel it is not sinful for you to drink if a believer who has come from a past where it is problematic comes along and he is grieved by it for him it is sin and you've just caused him to sin do you think that it is best to put a brother in a position to sin just so that you can be free to exercise this liberty that you feel that you have? Or maybe you're the person who says, look, if he's uncomfortable with my drinking, that's his problem. Right? We wouldn't say that, would we? I don't really care if he likes it or not. I have the ability to do it, so if I want to do it, I'm going to do it. If I want to have a drink, I'm going to have a drink. And if that's you, then I want you to know that you are dangerously close to falling into the sin of not walking in love. For you to walk in love is for you to be willing to sacrifice something that you feel is a freedom or something that is valuable to you in order to build up and to lift up other believers in the church body. That's what it means to walk in love. And so if you're the guy that's saying, hey, that's not my problem, that's his problem, and you drive him to uh, to sin, if you drive him to be grieved, then what you are doing is you are walking in a way that is not loving. You're to walk in a way that lifts people up, not in a way that tears people down. So after you've considered all of that, after you've thought about all of that, I think it's important for you to check your conscience. 
After you've considered all of those things, I want you to know that your conscience is the alarm system for your spirit. Holy Spirit prompts your conscience to help guide you and protect you from potentially harmful behavior. So I want you to know that if you can't do it with a completely clear conscience, if you can't do it without the fear of offending someone else, if you can't do it absolutely convinced in your heart that it's okay for you to do it, then you should not do it. Consider that for a moment. If you have any doubt, it could be that the Holy Spirit is trying to guide you. If you have any doubt, if you have to question, if you have to ask, it's possible that the Holy Spirit is trying to steer you somewhere, isn't it? If your conscience is telling you that for you it's not best, don't violate your conscience. Because when you violate your conscience, you're going to push yourself into a deeper place of insensitivity to the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately what's going to happen is you're not going to be able to follow His leading anymore. So what does Paul say? Be not drunk. On the other hand, do what? Be guided by the Holy Spirit. And that's our next time. Father, I thank You for the challenge of Your Word. Lord, it's the desire of our hearts to honor You and to bless You. And as we deal with a topic like this, it's never an easy one. But Lord, I just pray that You would work on the spirits and the conscience of everyone here and that You, through the power of Your Holy Spirit, would guide them into right decision-making, guide them to right reasoning, that everything that we do could bring glory to Your name. Lord, help us to be people who are so sensitive and people who walk in love to such a great extent that we're not willing to violate someone else and to create a stumbling block for them. But let us be people who give ourselves over in love so that we can build up other people. Let us always be, God, people who are a shining light for You that the world can look to us as priests of God who are sober-minded and watchful and careful in all that we do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.